Night falls on the golden age of humanity. Sons shall turn upon their father, and his worlds drown in blood. The eye shall open, and the galaxy will burn. Join us, listeners. We go into the canon lore of the Forge World Black Books on Heresy Grad School. Professors Jason, Patrick, and Dave, myself, will dive into the lore of the Black Books and the Black Library novels that we know and love and explore the heresy as history. So get a coffee, get your notebook out, and uh, prepare to explore heresy as history with us on Heresy Grad School. Hey everybody, welcome back to a, uh, another exciting episode of Heresy Grad School. Here with uh, Professors Jason, Dave, and myself, Patrick. We're uh, finishing up our coverage on Knights from Book 4. Um, got a bunch of really cool stuff to talk about. And uh, we're going to start off with Household Ranks with Dave. And then we're going to go into um, House Maccabius with Jason. And then I'm going to finish up with uh, Veroni. So uh, without further ado, Dave? Yeah, so this has been a really, really fun deep dive for me. And I I know Jason has enjoyed it as well. Um, So we're going to say a fond farewell to Knights for, I think, the the immediate time being. But I'm sure we will revisit them um, at some point in the future as we kind of go off and uh, look for other dark areas of the galaxy to explore. Um, it does feel like we hit this at sort of the like the perfect moment, though, man. Um, I just got my issue of White Dwarf, the March issue, and there is a, a whole section on a vassal household of uh, of knights attached to Legio Invigliata. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to look at that yet. No, not yet. It's really cool. So. Um, but yeah, so the 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 vassal household um, that's attached to Legio Invigliata is basically knights that have been seconded. So it's a little bit different spin on like the Procon Vi knights that come out of um, uh, the Forge world of Procon, right? So they're not just right. being mass produced. So they're being like, um, let's say by the you know ones and twos and threes, they show up. And they are basically, you know, they're seconded. They're basically, you know, given official orders to join the uh, the legio in defense of the legio. And then they and then they uh, adopt their heraldry, right? They adopt their banners. And so it's pretty cool. It's just another way to look at knights on the battlefield attached to Titan legions. It's very different than. You know the the side-on protocols that we we looked at at the very beginning of this, and then some of the other imperial knight households. So, so so much variety, man. It's very cool. But without further ado, um, what I really wanted to talk about before we close this out, man, is the household ranks. So we know, and we've talked about knights being extremely. Um, 
sort of uh, stratified, I think, in their culture and their night in their night uh, households. Right, it's very right. Uh, very focused on the caste system and bloodlines and everything. So, um, in the back of the book, it tells you how to build a Questorus Knight Crusade army list, but I'm not going to talk about rules. What I want to talk about is the different ranks that are sort of associated with those positions on the battlefield. And the first one is the Knight Seneschal. And the Knight Seneschal is the apex of the order of knights. So it is a, it is a commonly referred to title, and it's conferred either to the head of a particular household um, or that household's mustard, mustard forces on the battlefield. Um, but usually it's, it's a title that's given and confers with its symbolic authority. Um, and then that, that knight and the, the scion that, that, that pilots that knight um, has overall tactical command of the battlefield, at least in terms of the knights. Um, the role of the Seneschal also involves sort of um, understanding the strengths and the natures of the forces of the Imperium, as well as the dangers that lie beyond in the cold stars and the foes that await there. So it's, it's a title that's not given lightly. It's a title that's earned in blood on the battlefield. Um, and so these Seneschals would have had a lot of experience fighting sort of the, the foes of the Great Crusade. Um, and so they're really good, obviously. Um, on the battlefield there uh, uh, and on the tabletop, they do well too. One thing I should say before we go down any further uh, is the term scion. Um, the term scion simply, per, uh, simply refers to a noble. So essentially any noble that is in a knight chassis or a knight armor is a scion. Um, so it doesn't, it, it actually doesn't have a specific rank in and of itself. It just sort of denotes the fact that you're of noble bloodline and uh, you are a pilot of, uh, of a knight suit or a knight armor. So the other, uh, the other title we have here in terms of sort of the command and control structure of uh, a knight banner is a Lord Scion. So this is a term that's collective, um, but it also encompasses all of the upper echelons of a Questorus Knight Crusade force. So it could be uh, a baron, it could be a margrave, it could be a Cyrador count, a thane, right, Pat? I think that's what the uh, your nine household would refer to it is, right? Um, uh, chieftain. Chieftain, yeah. Yep. So there's there's these this the term Lord Scion is not it's not um it, it's not a demonstrative in terms of being everywhere. Uh, there are local variations that mean sort of the same thing, but uh, it denotes sort of in peerage and rank, you are the supreme authority below a Seneschal on the battlefield. Um, they are war-tempered veterans whose position has not simply been bought with age and lineage, but with blood and fire upon the battlefield. Lord Scion's medal and record are known to all under their command, just, it is, just as it is blazoned by the heraldry that adorns their knight armor an open challenge to any who would oppose them. So those two ranks, the Seneschal and the Lord Scion, make up the um, sort of the command and control of a knight banner on the battlefield. And then you get into some of the more um, specified battlefield roles. 
So you have a knight preceptor. And a knight preceptor is a knight that um, I think my house, right? So house Orlock would have a large number of preceptors because there are they are knights that have displayed a particular faculty for technology. Um, sometimes they serve as sacristans. Sometimes they serve alongside sacristans, but they're always sort of um, learning about the inner workings of the throne mechanicum and the knights. And so they have some very particular talents. Um, they make really good instructors to the household aspirants, which are the, the sort of the, the young bloods, the up and coming nobles. Um, and they have a deeper understanding of sort of what the knight armor is in terms of what it's capable of. And so they're really, it's a cool rank. Um, it's a cool sort of identity within a knight banner and a household. Um, and often they, they become sort of lore keepers and uh, they are, they're the keepers that allow the technology and the maintenance of the night suits and the auspex equipment and everything that goes, you know, the, the, the weapon systems, everything that goes with a night um, to sort of survive uh, through the, uh, through the generations. Um, so they're pretty cool. And then you've got a rank that I could not find an analog to this in any terms of, in any history, right? So it's a knight um, octalaire. Uh, and that's, that, that is not a word that exists in the English language or any other language, French, German, uh, Norse, that I could find. So octalaire is an archaic rank whose traditions flourished in ancient days when night houses battled bloodily for supremacy with one another. Though on many night worlds, feuds and affairs of honor were settled through highly ritualized and formalized duels, uh, when the matter was pressed, either with bitter wrath or pure desperation of survival and mass battle was inevitable, you would call these guys, right? And so they would sort of serve as your champion. Like they're the guy that you call to sort of settle your score. Um, and so do they act as a second or are they... Yeah, yeah. Or do they fight for you so like you don't fight yourself? Yeah, no, I think you're right, Pat. I think they would they would would act as they would they would act as your champion in matters of honor. Um and when like total warfare between knight households would probably result in like mutually assured destruction and that would not have benefited anybody, um, then you call these guys, right? And and they're um they're pretty they're pretty badass. They're also sort of like borderline, you know, like uh they're they're willing to do things that other people are not willing to do. So they um, they are like in the Great Crusade, they were the ones that would just do they would do what it took to win, right? So desperate tactics. Um, they would do things that other knights probably due to honor and protocol would not do. But these were the guys that were like, you called these you broke these were the guys you broke glass on, right? Right. So, so um, they're pretty cool. Uh, I think it's a really cool idea. Um, you know, in gameplay, when you set these guys up, and we're not going to talk about rules, but you pick an enemy, and then that's, you know, that's the the enemy on the table that you try to take down. So that kind of gives you some idea of of who these guys are. And then yeah, there's it's like a preferred enemy kind of thing, right? Um, it's 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 more like you select an individual target on the battlefield rather than you would get preferred enemy 
everything, right? Like preferred enemy infantry, preferred enemy, like you, you actually pick a model and then that's the, that's the one you go after. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, they're pretty badass. Um, and then there's this little call-out box, which I really want to focus on because it's interesting. Um, it's a legendary free blade, and it says, drawn out from the ranks of their former households, either willingly owing to the lure of adventure or the unquenchable lust for battle or unwillingly as an outcast, renegade, or last survivor, free blades are knights mendicant, owing no allegiance and no fealty. Of these, many were drawn to the Great Crusade, lured by the thirst for glory or the unceasing clangor of war on the frontier, joining the Questorus Crusade forces and fighting on countless worlds in support of the Emperor's great work. So I, what's really cool about this is um, within a knight banner, within a knight household, you absolutely can, can include uh, free, bla free blades of either your own choosing or legendary free blades. Um, it's interesting in the rules here, and I don't, I don't think anybody that I've talked to has, has actually noticed this, but it seems like Forge World was making sort of an allowance to include legendary free blades that had rules. So like a character knight. Um, we haven't seen one of those in 30k yet, but there are quite a few of them in 40k. And so I hope... This is sort of my private, right? My uh, my wishes and desires, right? Like, I hope we see some character knights in 30K. That would just be super fucking badass. I mean, there's certainly enough, like, color panels in all the books, not just, you know, book four, but there's there's enough out there to make sense, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so we'll see. Maybe we'll get some... Uh, some unique rules and, and character knights down the way. Cause it seems like in, at least on page 296 in book four, um, Forge World has specifically um, made a special place for those guys in a Nyquistorus household. Um, so now we get into sort of the, the, the standard troop ranks and you have a Scion Marshal. And a Scion Marshal is basically, you're gonna be your, 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 your footmen, right? Your, your battle mm -hmm. line. Um, they make up the main strength of the household banners. Um, they're experienced in warfare and they know how to use their machines. Um, so they're going to make up the bulk of your, of your night banner. And then you have the scion aspirant who is, you know, sort of your, um, you know, your, your new, your new scion. Um, they haven't been blooded in war yet. Uh, they may be, uh, this may be their first time on the battlefield. Um, so it's, th what I really like about this is the rules allow for you to bring basically like a noob onto the battlefield, right? <laughs> it's so, it's so cool. Um, so these, these, you know, they have, you know, they've got some weaknesses, right? Associated with them. Um, and uh, I think it's really cool that you're allowed that you're allowed to bring these um, troops onto the battlefield in a night banner, uh, so that you can kind of have that thematic and 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 narrative experience of, oh yeah, I'm going to play my young blood, right? Maybe he's the grandson of the um, of the seneschal or the lord scion, right? Maybe he's or maybe she's the granddaughter of the. Um, 
you know, of the head, the head huntress or something. Baby's so really... first night chassis, right? <laughs> well, we haven't, well, we're getting, we're not, we're not quite there. Baby's first night chassis. Glad you brought that up. Um, so we did get some rules and they're still, I think, quote unquote, experimental. Mm-hmm. Um, but we got some rules for the, the armatures, right? And in the armature rules, it specifically calls out a new troop rank, which is Scion Auxilia. I'll just read this here. So the warriors um, that are most often recruited from outside of a household's core bloodline serve as pilots of armature frames. So these could be distant cousins of the nobility. They could be um, warriors that proved their valor at a tournament, um, or even potentially really impressive prisoners that were captured on the battlefield. And then, you know, you wanted to put their talents to use, but you didn't want to give them a a full knight armor. Um, So it's a, it's a rank that's outside of the bloodline, but it is still a troop rank that you could see within a knight banner. And um, they're not as, they're not as many in number, right? So they would be few in number, according, you know, opposed to a scion marshal or a scion aspirant. But a scion, scion auxilias did take to the battlefield um, as part of night banners, and it was often like their reckless bravery that uh, defined them um, during battle. So I think that was very cool that we got a new rank in the uh, in the Questorus night <coughs> night household. Not just a new chassis, right? So the new chassis is another thing, but we actually got a new rank to include in the uh, in the knight households. So that's pretty cool. So then we go on to some of the the fast attack ranks, but these, you know, those are terms that are made to fit in game. But what I think they really are in terms of knight ranks is these are sort of the far riders, right? These are the ones right. that are scouting out. Um, alongside the battlefield. So the first one is a Scion Dolores. And this is a title that was bestowed on knights who were famous for slaying beasts and, um, you know, on their home worlds would probably have gone out and taken down some of the large fauna uh, that was out there. And uh, so the epithet is Dolores. It's an ancient tongue encoded to the great arcs, which bore the knights to their founding world. And it means grievous or mournful in its true form. But within the society of knights, it has grown to have a double-edged meaning. Scions who have proved themselves time again against the mega predators, which populate many of the night worlds, gaining for themselves a tally of trophies and kill worthy of their peers. It also implies one perhaps to whom battle and slaughter have become an addiction to the exclusion of all else, and for whom life beyond the confines of night armor is a pale and hollow thing, and mortal danger their only wine and meat. So so these guys, you know, they're they're the ones out there roaming around the edges of the battlefield looking for the for the the big kill. You know, I would I imagine these as being Serastus Knight Lancers who are trying to outflank like a warhound. And they that you know, that's what they want to take down. They want to take down the fucking Titan, right? Right. They're going after the big predator, you know, the apex predator. They're that's what they're going after. So they're a little unbalanced, right? This is there's some there's some significant risk in here. Um 
but so the the way it fits into the to the household rank is you know they want to be forward deployed um they want to be at the forefront of battle they're often going to charge ahead of the main battle line or the the main banner and some of their peers might think yeah this, this guy's like maybe a little suicidal right but um but really it's just these guys are driven by battle lust and the ones that survive long enough um are able to sort of control that that malady, that battle lust. They're able to temper it, and so they can kind of turn it on and and uh, and channel it, you know, when they need to in battle. So that's very cool. And then you have the Scion Ulan, and the Ulan tradition is one followed by most hot-blooded and impetuous knight households. Um, and and this would be very true, I think, of the the knights pro con. Right, so the knights in Titan Death that we learn a lot about the Procon, or the House Vi knights, right? Um, so they're just they come from this sort of warrior culture, uh, rapid victory, high speed maneuverability, um, this throwing caution to the wind. They're going out there, and um, they're used as scouts, raiders, reavers. Uh, either they're forming the front line of skirmish or they're doing flanking forces on the open field and circling foes, running them down. Um, many knights, uh, Scions Ulan, uh, use Serastus pattern knights, obviously, right? Because they're superior battle speed. Um, so a lot of the knights, Scion Ulans, would be in Serastus patterns knights, uh, castigators, lancers, um, those, those kinds of knights. All right. Wrapping it up here, we have the heavy support ranks of the knight household. We have the Scion Arbalester. Um, Arbalesters excel at dealing death at range. Big surprise. Right. For heavy support. Um, so, you know, these would be the best. These would be probably, you would see these in, right? So they're gunners. Um, you may see them actually in some of the Questorus patterns uh, of knights. Would they would lend themselves to, I think. But they're basically looking to take down big prey at range. Um, they're the support to the battle line. They're the support to the banner. Um, they've got the heaviest weapons, and they're screening their comrades' advance. Um, and also, importantly, they're shielding the knight banner from aerial attack. So this is a rank inside of a knight household or inside of a banner that's very important because if a knight household or a knight banner goes out unsupported, then the Scion Arbalester is the one that is going to have to provide sort of that close close air support, that coverage, that anti-air um, coverage. So that's cool. And then we have the Scion Implacable. Um, an epithet applied to a household knight who has shown a particular aptitude for siege warfare. An implacable is an invaluable warrior in such situations as heavy assault against fortified positions and also in the desperate maelstrom of cityscape warfare. In situations such as these, the knight, despite its power, might become undone uh, if it can be surrounded or swarmed by an enemy. So the implacable is the one who's going to go out and make sure that in siege warfare or city fight, uh, the knights are not getting encircled. They're not being they're not being trapped. Um, so he's going to be your 
sort of your expert on city fighting, siege warfare, and how to take down really fortified defenses. Um, and like like everything else, I will say about these household ranks, they are they are more. I would say they're more sort of notional than they are defined, right? So like within every household, are you going to find these ranks? No, absolutely not, right? So within Air, you know, Erthagon, are you going to find all of these ranks? Probably not. In House Vi, you would find way more Scion Ulans than you would find um, probably Scion Arblasters, right? But so, so these are ranks that probably are fluid, um, and probably applicable to households, some households more than others. Um, but I think it's really cool that they, you know, Forge World, Black Books, you know, went out and sort of added this depth of, of character to, to these knight households and sort of developed this complex set of skills that, you know, nobles who pilot these knight chassis in knight households um, would have and how they come together on the battlefield and have like specific. Um, you know, tactical jobs and stuff. So, uh, so that's that's it. Turn it over, man. I've talked enough, dude. Thanks, Dave. I mean, that was a super in-depth dive. I mean, I've always seen the ranks, and you know, I've been like, okay, cool. I'll use these rules if I ever go to a mega battle, that kind of thing. But never like actually sat and read the the blurbs about them and like actually tried to figure out, you know, what would my house use mostly that kind of thing. Yeah. It was really fun to, to sort of pick up on some of the, the lore that's, uh, that's embedded there. So yeah, hopefully that gives some, gives people a little bit of, uh, a little bit of narrative as they feel their night houses on the table. I will yeah, man. look forward to seeing your night houses. Send us pictures. If you guys have night houses, We've actually put this out, but like if you have full night houses or even partial night houses, like send us pictures, man. I'd love to put those up on our uh, on our Facebook page. Yeah, you got a paladin or two, paladin or two, or heck, like Dave was talking about with the armager. You got a paladin and a couple armagers. Shoot us a picture. We'll post it. Yeah, that'd be super cool. Give us some fluff too. Yeah, man. Well, uh, Jason, I guess we're on to uh, House Macabius, man. All right, let's see if I can do this guy's justice. So, ah, Cabius, let me tell you about these poor sad assholes, guys. It's a sad story. Um, Macabius is an enormous nighthound. Uh, they were at their height during the heresy. They were over 200 armors, which pretty sizable. And they were kind of driven to damnation alongside Horus through just their own need to succeed and excel. And it's kind of a, it's kind of cool and kind of sad because they're like that perfect tragic story. But uh, Macabius is originally, uh, it was originally bonded uh, to Mezua. And if you remember these guys, we talked about them so many times throughout the length of our coverage on the corner. Uh, they were the Forge World alongside Pandex that were, uh, both of those were stuck in Braille Abyss. And Mezua were the guys tasked with resupplying Macabius. So, a uh, couple of fun things about Macabius. Always eager and at the front of any conflict. Uh, overwhelming determination 
face of impossible odds. Uh, they're very instrumental and uh, really prevalent in a lot of imperial campaigns in the northern region. Uh, and unfortunately, it's the same drive for you know glory in the face of impossible odds that really set them on the path of ruin. So, what's interesting is this pursuit of ideals and you know perfection. It's a little odd alongside the legion uh, they eventually end up with the uh, Death Guard, where they finish out the heresy. So, a little bit of backstory on House McCabe here. Uh, their homeworld is nestled deep within the Grail Abyss, uh, named Baroda, and they began M30 in kind of a sorry state. There was kind of a dual, a kind of a duality of what was going on with Baroda. There were really terrible storms, uh, even impressive for the warp storms of old night it really sheltered a lot of these uh, night worlds in the grail abyss but it also really isolated them and uh, unlike house veroni um which we're going to talk about a little bit later uh macabius was so cut off that they actually started to devolve technology so baroda's natural resources were already starting to dwindle by the time uh they were isolated, so they were not going into Old Night at height of what they were capable of, and it really only got worse. So it's uh, said to be a terrestrial-type world with a variegated climate, and I love how they casually mention uh, also exhibits the sordid megafauna associated with such world. So yeah, yeah, they just have dinosaurs, but it's a minor detail so far as it goes. Uh, they also have really terrible climactic storms, which are just um, more or less constant at, uh, across the world. And what's interesting is, between the storms and the dwindling natural resources, it really led to frequent infighting. There are actually a lot of households on Baroda before they were rediscovered. So Maccabeus is the last surviving house uh, by the time they were rediscovered discovered by the Imperium. And they were really only left with a handful of knights by the time the showed up. So uh, the strength of those other night houses on Baroda really drained from centuries of war, uh, 800 years altogether, actually. And they would just, uh, these night houses would fling themselves into combat over the last few, like, open-air mines giant storm-proof refineries for um, minerals and fuel that Baroda was kind of like um, it was kind of like the center of whatever remained of their natural resources and economy. And they would literally, these night houses would extinguish entire bloodline of nobility that lasted back hundreds of thousands of years just to get their hands, even temporarily, on some of these refineries and mines. Um, Macabeus, like we said, was basically the only one that survived. Uh, they destroyed their last predator, uh, House Wintorth, in 831-30, uh, several decades before integration of the Imperium. And this brought an end to an 800-year civil war. Uh, Macabeus basically rules unopposed for around 20 years. Uh, but what's interesting is they don't lose this competitive drive, this kind of hunger for glory and combat. 
So ritual combat starts to become even more common for rank imposition. And uh, that actually kind of draws a little bit of a parallel to the Eighth Legion. Uh, the Night Lords are also really big on ritual combats for rank imposition. To, uh, they consider it you know, just as much of a viable strategy to make their way up the chain of command as you know, anything else. So the problem is they have, Macabeus has conquered their own planet. They don't have a whole lot to do. Their technology has basically degraded to the point that space travel is not really viable anymore. And some of their knights, all of their knights really, uh, they have just been repaired and put together again and again so many times over just these centuries of warfare that the ones that are left are reduced to burning fossil fuels. Uh, there's some that are powered. They're massive sheet iron uh, welding on top of you know, armor in ceramite and adamantium they can no longer reproduce. So they've turned into battle bots is what I'm hearing. Yeah, pretty close. Um, it's not that far. I mean, a battle bot that's like a good 40 feet tall, but still. And since they don't possess this technology to repair or rearm or do basically any of the maintenance sacristy charged with, their knights have devolved to the point where they're barely holding together. But it's really kind of interesting because you have these veteran knight scions of literal centuries of warfare uh, that are in these knights that are barely holding together anymore. So it seems like one of the few places in the Imperium as a whole where the human element is really, really, um, you know, indispensable. They're war-torn. They have hundreds of years of experience, but the equipment they have is ramshackle and barely hold it together. So um, Baroda is found by a comparatively small Imperial fleet said to be barely a hundred Voidcraft and a company of about a thousand Imperial just. Uh, Baroda does not wish to acquiesce quietly and join the Imperium, uh, even though they only have access to a very few orbital defenses, uh, including some long obsolete missiles and server drones, which are pretty casually swatted aside by the fleet and uh, fist and drop pod. So, Macabeus. Again, 800-year civil war, they really have been conditioned to only expect violence from anybody that's not of the house. So, of course, the Lord Marshal of a glory and honor-hungry nighthouse refuses to surrender even in the face of overwhelming odds. He issues a direct challenge to the Imperial Fist uh, Huskarl Company uh, to essentially an open, a duel and an open battle between uh, the pride of House Maccabeus and the thousand-man Imperial Fist Company. So the Imperial Fist commander sees this as a way to avoid a protracted campaign of pacification, kind of avoid destroying all of these veteran pilots that they've just found resource of essentially a brand new night out. And uh, so these two sides meet under uh, yet another big giant you know, world-spanning storm, and this comes to be known as the conflict at Arbor and Moor. So uh, the fists are kind of clashing against like the giant 
bulk iron steam and you know diesel powered uh, ramshackle knights and it's just it's a scary one-sided conflict uh the knights are just blown apart by demolisher and uh terminator kick them over it's just bad across the board Cadius. uh however uh as the imperial fists are you know putting the boots to the medium style uh the Macabeus scions absolutely refuse to surrender until their knights are dismantled to the point they can no longer so in the aftermath baroda and Macabeus swore undying loyalty to the imperium and gained the patronage patronage excuse me of uh, the zoan forge world who ostensibly should re-equip and repair the household. Now, the problem with the Mazoan Forge is these warp storms have not abated as much as anybody would prefer. So, Mezua has to both construct these knight armors and transport them to Baroda, and this is taking forever. Macabeus, uh, you gotta think about this from their perspective. They're this house where glory and honor in combat is absolutely everything and they're held back by you know essentially being isolated and devolving into the point where their knights are barely functional and they have this forge world that ostensibly should be you know resupplying revitalizing their household and the mazoans don't want to risk their large exporter arcs in a region where of space where the warp storms are so terrible. So they're shipping over small, you know, ones and twos of new knight armor uh, via, like, little bitty cruiser instead. And to compound this problem, as soon as these armors are getting there, there's, of course, like, instant challenge and combat over who gets the new armors and who gets stuck at home with the ramshackle diesel knights. And as soon as these newly equipped nobles are getting these armor, uh, these new knight armors, they're almost instantly leaving the planet and joining up with one prong or another of the Great Crusade. And this is causing a huge problem for Macabeus and Baroda as a whole because they're essentially hemorrhaging military power. Uh, it gets so bad to the point it actually provokes the uh, Lord Marshal who actually uh, managed to survive all the way through that Battle of Arbor Moor. Uh, it's a guy named Cirrus Landale. Uh, but he manages to survive and he and the kind of ruling cle- uh, the ruling council of Baroda, uh, a bunch of guys called the Magna Cunium, they actually forbid uh, taking up the role of Questorus, that is, uh, going out on crusade, without the express approval from your scion's immediate liege. And this has the exact opposite effect of what they want. Instead of actually stemming the tide of knight scions picking up these brand new armors and in- instantly jetting out to link up with whatever part of the Great Crusade will have them, uh, it actually forces a lot of these young nobles to ditch their vows and bonds to the house free blade instead of uh you know staying back at home and so this ends up that instead of having large detachments of macabeus knights uh many armies expand imperium in the 
Crusade have small little just KB tonight. So even though they're small, they rack up a very fearsome reputation as shock troops and line breakers as, you know, befits many knights. Uh, but they are always first to volunteer bareheads fights against overwhelming odds. This uh, kind of comes to uh, their nickname, the Forlorn Hope, uh, to crusade elements that fight beside them, kind of like a comment in respect of the value of the scions of Cabian. Um, however, they did tend to gain a sort of negative uh, reputation, too, for uh, jumping from army to army, looking for those that are the most active and the most likely to enhance their own personal glory. And this is where we run into a pretty big issue, and possibly where it starts to go even further south. I mean, this isn't really the beginning of the end. Probably the beginning of the end of Macabius was back before Old Knight, and they were already dealing on resources. But uh, this isn't great either. So there's a scion dude named Markin Frotham. Uh, he literally turns the tide of battle during pacification of a planet called Scarron, and he was fighting alongside the Luna Wolf, and this looked like it was going to be a very rare defeat for the 16th Legion, um, but Prothum manages to personally destroy several giant um, arachnid automata of a corrupt forge crypt, and this is kind of the deed that both elevates Maccabeus to like really storied heights of honor, but also kind of damns and it doesn't end well for anybody involved. So helping out with the Luna Wolves bring Frotham to the direct attention of Ezekielabad, and it earns Frotham a spot in the upper echelons of the 63rd Expeditionary Fleet, which you may remember is Horus's personal fleet. So, um, Woo! Sons of Horus! Right? Uh, still Luna Wolves at the time, but yeah, not uh, too far off. So this is probably where Hrotham speaks to the upper elements of the expeditionary fleet about his languishing house back home. Uh, speaking of which, there's kind of like a rot setting in to the scions left at home on Baroda. Uh, these poor bastards have been left by themselves. Uh, basically, they're kind of the dregs of the house. and it's to the point where there's only a couple of dozen of them left that haven't jetted off for the crusade. Now, um, this is not great for Baroda as a whole. Essentially, anything useful has just immediately jumped ship and left. It's been 150 years or thereabouts after the Battle of Arborn Moor. Uh, when Hrotham gets back to the planet. Uh, basically, everybody left bitter as hell. They're envious of the stories of the other houses kind of rising prominent during the crusade. Uh, Maccabeus was really stymied by their new, uh, their near exile. It's a really slow trickle of new armor coming in from the Mazoan Forge. It really causes a lot of tension between some of the other night houses, specifically Veroni. Uh, they're a competitor for both their influence in the crusade and imperial favor as well as in over the few outposts and resources in the grail abyss and essentially the only reason hostilities weren't open with Veroni and Maccabeus was that um, <laughs> uh, in 
bad state it was in, Macabius was really stymied by its lack of armor suitable for combat. So this is the environment Hrotham comes back into. He actually returns to the planet just a few months before Istvan 3 kicks off, and he manages to round up a lot of the scions that had left the world previously. So he's coming back to a planet with a bunch of young guys and girls who are looking to leave the planet and bring honor to their house. And these are a bunch of like hard-bitten, you know, veteran scions that are coming back. They've bring, they're bringing stories of the crusade. They're coming back with war-scarred armor that has, you know, lengthy battle honors. When they get back, uh, they're almost immediately chastised by that Lord Marshal and Magnus Cilium. Uh, those guys have essentially been sitting on the planet complaining for decades, where Markham is seen as like this returning hero. Uh, so when Markin gets back, uh, they don't like the fact that he comes back with all of this honor and the promises of the war master. Uh, however, uh, Markin Prothum finds a lot of support in these younger scions that are really eager to get out there and get the same glory these older scions are returning with. Uh, he's kind of seen as like, you know, this rock star that appeals to the youngsters. And it's not long before he boots the old guard out of power by elimination, basically driving them into exile. And uh, Prothum takes up, well, creates, and then takes up a brand new title of a Lord Protector, kind of surreptitiously pledges his house to uh, Horus's service. So in return, the War Master's agents start diverting supplies and knight armor to Baroda, uh, both kind of cementing that alliance and really weakening the potential of the uh, future loyal knight armor um, coming back and biting the ass. So now Lord Protector Hrotham uh, sends a summons to all of Maccabeus' scions that are kind of out in the wild still to recall them to the homeworld. Uh, he's seen as this impressive figure to follow compared to the uh, conciliary and Lanthale, who were old and outdated, and now he's bringing these resources and this honor to the house that has never been seen before. So some of the knight scions who were attached to loyalist elements in the crusade come home and they do not countenance the alliance force. I mean, by this point, people know what's going on with Istvan III. And the loyalist elements uh, even brand themselves the Knights of the Covenant to kind of hearken to their ties to the imperial uh, the imperial truth and the emperor over the war master. So they take up arms. They seize the Black Tower, which is Baroda's astropathic sanctum. Uh, the Lord Protector leads the rest of the traitor knights on the world, along with the forces of the war master that have been, you know, kind of diverted there to destroy and take. Uh, the Tower from the Loyalists. So, um, like a lot of other parts of the Cornid conflict, this really goes unknown for years after uh, the heresy. A few months later, in uh, 006M31, straight after uh, Wreck and Face at Istvan Three, the Death Guard fleet arrives at Baroda. Uh, there, uh, Baroda is expecting Horus, you know, the War Master, the guys they pledged themselves to, to show up and ask for their assistance, but it's Mortarian instead. He shows up, demands Macabeus accompany them uh, via the Warmaster's own authority, 
And he also orders every bit of every asset and resource stripped from Baroda, uh, human and otherwise. Uh, and Maccabeus is next seen at the massacre at Dominica Minor, which if you guys want to go check that action out in our coronation coverage, it's a pretty big deal. So Prothum is required to attend Mortarian personally, and he is never seen um, after they leave Baroda. Now, his personal seal accompanies Mortarians alongside every quote-unquote official decree and command to come to House Macabius, and even his knight can be seen in combat on several occasions. However, that knight's Mechanicum uh, throne chamber is sealed from the outside. And now, since Macabius is kind of bereft of that leadership that drew them all back together, uh, they're really forced to just accompany the 14th Legion despite the 14th's reputation towards uh, using and expending auxiliary forces. Now, uh, from there, you can kind of pick up with where we started um, talking Macabius in our Coronet Deeps coverage. So, uh, for their material strength, again, we talked about how they were barely holding armors together. Uh, they were essentially amalgams of a bunch of different machines. Uh, but you have a lot of warriors with combat experience. Again, most of these people are veterans of decades and centuries of civil war. And most of these veterans will win the ritual combat to claim the armors when they trickled in from Mezua and then instantly disappear. So I worked out the math on that. Uh, by about triple uh, zero M31, uh, it's 150 years approximately since they pledged themselves to the Imperium after Arbor and War. They had received only about 100 new armors. That's less than one per year uh, from Mezua. Again, due to like the really god-awful warp turbulence, armors arrive in groups uh, via explorator cruisers instead of the larger arcs because the Zoans don't want to risk arcs in the region. So even worse, um, again, after bonding with those armors, uh, the Macabeus Scions immediately leave to join the Crusade. When Markham shows back up, there are barely two dozen knights left at the garrison. So, um, when Markham returns and becomes the Lord Protector, uh, Baroda straight up cuts its eyes with Zoa. Uh, they're not fans already because they're seen as being underappreciated and really... Mazoa seems to have been nothing but condescending to them. Uh, they only barely uh, kind of fulfill their end of the bargain. Uh, instead, they start relying on the supply lines of the war master. And in just a few months after uh, Markin gets home, uh, their ranks have increased to over 200 knight armors and a full host of retainers and support war machines. So that's uh, in 150 years, they got 100 armors from Mezua, but in just several months, Horus doubles. So, of course, these supplies can neither be confirmed nor denied in where they came from, but several convoys of armor bound for Demetus 2 II and 3 uh, inexplicably vanish immediately prior to Istvan 3. Huh. So, that is the sad story of House. Cabius in more or less its entirety. 
I mean, is it really all that sad? Because, I mean, their knights eventually did, or at least the youngsters who were pissed off that they had to stay home got to go out and fight Horus's war. Granted, it was with the Death Guard, which is less than favorable. Yeah, until they were eventually worn down and essentially discarded as resources when they were used up by the Death Guard. Other than that, yeah, it's all uh, it's all uh, strawberries. Yeah, lots of uh, scrap metal strawberries. Absolutely. I love the I love the image of a steampunk knight, like fighting another steampunk knight on this totally you know backwards world of Baroda. You know, and if anyone models something like that you know which is would which be amazing this diesel engine powered knight with like a lance that's like you know you know bolted on or tied on that would just be super cool for me to see is it bad that like jason when you started talking about the knights being like scrapped together and running diesel like i automatically thought of like a semi truck with a knight chassis on on it like that's all I could think of for some reason. Like somebody had just welded parts of Optimus Prime onto the <laughs> Exactly. Or like just like instead of the um the Night Scion cabin, it it's just like the front end or it's like the cab of a semi. And whenever they go into battle, there isn't war horns, it's it's legitimately just an air horn. Uh, 100% positive, that is exactly how it happened. Yeah. Well, I think House Veroni is a perfect follow-up for Macabius because of their their hate for each other, although unable to uh, actually attack each other. Oh, yeah, they're like the uh, spoiled rich kids to uh, Macabius's, like, yeah, sad little cobbled-together now. Well, you say that, but House Veroni. So, um, I'll go into it. Um, so, House Veroni is from a night world, as Jason already mentioned, uh, Damatus 3 and 2. And um, they, they were loyalists, or they went loyalist. But essentially, when they first colonized uh, Damatus 3 and 2, uh, it was ruled by the way they describe it in the black books is uh auto chthonic life forms which were essentially giants um and had the ability to uh to communicate and essentially demanded that uh the settlers of house veroni uh to swear fealty to them and let them devour them and pay tithes and whatnot. And so they spent years fighting these giant creatures, but eventually killed them. Um, and that's actually how they got their, their nickname, which is God eaters. Cause these, these beings on uh Damodus three and two were, were meant to be like the size of knights or even bigger, uh, the size of reavers almost. Um, but then during but then during like old night they dealt with uh constant attacks from eldar and orcs and then um i think we we talked briefly about this in our corner deep uh 
section about the uh, the Me Too conglomerate, which was a, a host of a uh, host of Xenos that essentially tried to have control of the Corn Deeps, and try as they might, Veroni, um, or try as they might to subjugate Veroni, they kept on fighting and kept on fighting, kept on fighting, uh, until Veroni was completely exhausted of all resources and just expecting their doom. And it never came. Eventually, a, uh, a, a single craft landed on, on their homeworld, and it was a Stormbird of the First Legion. Essentially, just one of the, exploratory, or, or the uh, exploratory fleets and led by the Dark Angels saying, Hey, we found you. You're now with us. Um, but one of the one of the things I found interesting about their homeworld is that their main, like the main um, hub or city, is called uh, Fellweather Keep, and it's actually built out of their exploratory arc, um, which I thought was really really cool, because at least um, with House uh, Airthane, you know they. They don't talk about like their exploratory arc or anything like that. Essentially, all you know is that their their homeworld was shattered into like a hundred pieces, that kind of thing. Um, let's see. So once they become part of the Great Crusade, uh, scions start start leaving the world, or a group of scions goes with the Dark Angels and leaves the world, um, and that group of scions as well as future groups of scions uh serve actually under multiple different um specific groups first under the dark angels that found them then uh the word bearers and then they wind up with the imperial fists and i'm kind of wondering if they don't mention it in the book but if the imperial fists they serve under are the same imperial fists that then found macabius or or something to that effect which would be interesting hey pat there's um there's an actually an interesting reference on page 50 in the Adeptus Titanicus rulebook. Yeah. Um, so there is a banner, the Questorus Knight um, banner, Parasina, and they are in defense of Legio Defensor. And Legio Defensor was at the Second Battle of Paramar. And if you guys know your, your, your heresy history... Who else was at the Battle of Paramar? Okay, I uh, I'm pretty sure the Imperial Fists were there. Oh, I was going <laughs> to let Jason answer it, but yeah, okay, yeah. So I, I think promise that... I know things. <laughs> um. So yeah, so that, that that definitely confirms that you know House Veroni was was with the Imperial Fists during the Crusade. Yeah, um, I I did find it interesting that in, in one regard Veroni is actually kind of a an opposite to Macabius and the fact that all of their science and their entire noble house, and actually even the people, the uh, people that live on Damodus three and two are in a constant state of like sorrow and being withdrawn. And it's like something within their bloodline. The way they describe it is let's see. Um, the nobles of house Veroni are noted for their unique, sorrowful, Maine, a manner a manner born of the knowledge that their ancestors five thousand year vigil against the terrors of old night might be rendered utterly meaningless or obliterated entirely at the hands of a warrior 
who is at one time the emperor's most beloved son. So like they're they're constantly in a state of melancholy. Um which which I thought was interesting. But even though Jason mentions or Jason said before that they're like the rich kids to House Macabius. The thing is is that at their height they only had about a hundred knights. And by the end or by the time the Dark Angels find them or yeah, by the time the Dark Angels find them, they are essentially worn down to their last couple of nights. No more supplies, no nothing else. And even though they're they're supplied a little bit it takes until um, year uh, 5.M31 for their grandmaster to even say, yes, I want to, I want to be bonded to a forge world in order to get resupplied with new knight armors. So um, Maca- if you think about it, Maccabeus had newer armors uh, before uh, Veroni even did. Ah, huh, that's weird. Yeah, and and the thing is, is that uh, Veroni, being a loyalist house, made the wrong decision. They they decided with Cyclothrace. Uh, they made the wrong decision being loyalist. Being loyalist, yes. Sorry, I mean, thank obviously. you. Obviously, I mean I, I'm a traitor at heart, but but I enjoy their story. Um, and so, uh, Grandmaster uh, Jock J A K essentially calls uh, recalls all of his knights back to the homeworld in order for the uh, act of bonding with Cyclothrace because they're expecting Cycloth- uh, a delegation from Cyclothrace to come saying hey here's all our knights this is here are your new chassis this is fantastic you'll now be with us congratulations um, and so they're uh, they're waiting and expecting uh, high majoses from Cyclothrace, as well as some some uh, some knights from House Earthane to show up. Um, but before they do, the uh, the eldest son of the Grand Master uh, essentially crash lands into Damatus three and two, and says betrayal uh, because he has just come uh, from from uh Istavan and essentially knows what's happening knows that Horus turned and so instead of being caught in a trap with Cyclothrace and Earthane uh they now know exactly what's coming coming and they fight they fight off the the ambush uh but the grandmaster dies uh while fighting to a um Cyclothracean knight Octolier which um, Jason, you may know more about that than I do, but I'm I, the name does not sound familiar to me. Um, I'm just as clueless as you are in this respect. Uh, okay, but uh, essentially, it, so the Grandmaster is killed. His son is mortally wounded, and they are just kind of forced into a rough spot where they have to they have to resupply. Or else they'll die. They have to swear fealty to somebody who's not Cyclothrace, and so they they go with uh, Mezua. And uh, being that Damatis three and two is not in the middle of a warp storm, Mezua is going to supply them. Uh, and because of like uh, because of Roni's 
choice to maintain their loyalty to the emperor and to the imperial truth, um, Mezua gives uh, the Grandmaster's son, uh, Geos, who's mortally wounded, a uh, a Majera chassis knight. But it's actually a very special Majera chassis knight because essentially it's a it's a giant dreadnought because he is so mortally wounded. He is he he is locked inside in like a almost like MIU sarcophagus kind of thing inside his night chassis, which I thought was interesting. And I thought you might find that interesting too, Dave, just because we talked about um Yeah, no that's the that's thrones. An, it's an interesting idea, right? So I mean I know with Titans you can get um sort of interred, right? So you can get right put into a pod and uh you know filled with amniotic sort of fluid and then you're you know you're basically permanently connected to the titan through the MIU and you're permanently connected to sort of this artificial reality um I didn't know you could do that with knights so that yeah. to me that's really the first time I've heard that you could do something like that with a knight I think it's a really interesting idea um, especially since we kind of know the throne mechanicum has to come out of the knight chassis, um, the knight armor when it's not being piloted. So the throne mechanicum does not stay in the knight armor. Um, it's so that's really that's really interesting. Yeah. So it's actually um, on in material strength on page one seventeen. I think it's like the very bottom of the first paragraph in that section. It says. Uh, the armor's artificer wrought system not only saved his life, but rendered him all but immortal in a manner not unlike a hero of the Legios, Legiones Astartes, interred within the sarcophagus of a dreadnought. And that kind of makes me think that maybe, like, legitimately, he just rules out of his night, and maybe he has to sleep occasionally, like how dreadnoughts need to sleep, or else they'll go insane. Yeah, no, that does make it sound like it's more like a sarcophagus, right? Like a dreadnought than it than a uh, than a titan. But that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, but I mean, in the same regard, like it being a dreadnought, like a sarcophagus, maybe they can pull the sarcophagus out. Um, but yeah, no, I thought that was uh, really cool. And then. Of of course they have they have these beautiful depictions of knights. Um, the first one is Christorus Knight Paladin Artemisia. Um, at the outbreak of the war in the Corona Deeps, Artemisia was deployed to the twelfth moon of Sargat Sargathi X or ten uh, so to support the twelve thirty third cohort of the Solar Auxilia in suppre- suppression against um, Xeno Raiders. Despite suffering significant casualties in their routine uh, routing of the Reaver Warband, the entire force was recalled to Manichea, where Artemisia took part in the defense of Hive Olain. So that's fun. And then there's plenty more heraldry for your uh, for your project there, Dave. Yeah, no, it's it's good stuff, man. I definitely want to get on that. Um, my favorite. House Veroni Knight, though, is, is on the next page, on page 120. The Serastus Knight Lancer Opsynthos? Opsynthos? Opsynthos, maybe? Yeah. Epsynthos? Yeah. Hey, listeners, if you know how to pronounce it correctly, <laughs> send us Absinth- an audio blurb. 
Absinthos, yeah. I think maybe Absinthos. But um, but yeah, we talked about her actually. Oh we yeah, talked, we talked about her very early on in our of the Corn and Deeps because Sion uh, Elsbeth Vor uh, was one of the knight, uh, one of the knights that took out the Tempestus Reaver, mm-hmm. Roxvalion at Hive Ilium. So, Which is so freaking cool. Oh, man. I mean, having played Adeptus Titanicus, sort of, I think, as much as Jason and I have, Pat, and I know you've played a little bit too, like, just the idea of a knight lancer taking down a reaver, I mean, that's it's as good as it gets, man, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, it, and I mean, that, that kind of harkens back to um, when I was reading Vengeful Spirit. Spoilers! By the way, if you haven't read Vengeful Spirit, I don't know why you're even listening to us. Go read Vengeful Spirit. Um, but there's a there's a whole night house on Moloch that essentially like takes out a warlord, and it's a bunch of uh, bunch of Ceresis uh, Lancers. I'm trying to remember the name it's though. Emperor Titan. No, oh, yeah, it's it's an Imperator. Oh, titan. sorry, it's an Imperator Titan. So it's yeah. even bigger and even better. And we're gonna get house we're gonna get well we're gonna get moloch right we're gonna get the next the next campaign book for adeptus titanicus is moloch oh and so, and so we are gonna get i mean i can only imagine we're gonna get rules for house divine right i, we can, I certainly hope so yeah i mean i think they're on the cover um certainly speculation is that they're on the cover um so yeah that'll be really cool it'd be really cool to see if there's a mechanic where knights can basically do what they did in Ventral Spirit, sort of combine their firepower into like a super powerful, you know, combined strike. Um, I would love to see that mechanic on the table. That would be cool. Um, and I guess one of the cool things about House Divine is you could technically run them as both loyalist and traitor. Yeah, yeah, poor... Who was it, Jason? Was it Albert, Albrud, or Albrecht? What's the guy's name? Albard. Albard, yeah. He's my, God. my favorite. <laughs> that name. That. that name alone. I love that. I mean, it's better than Raven Divine. Yeah, that guy. I mean, yeah, that's true. Um, but, but I guess to end House Veroni on a high note, I will say that out of all of the loyalists, Nighthouses, they're probably one of my favorites. Not only by like how they're like the emo goths of the loyalist night houses, but also I I'm I'm absolutely in love with their crest. That um, essentially a skeleton wearing a crown with lightning bolts coming out of it. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, they do have some pretty badass. Hair. Yeah. Which, and I mean, the fact that they've named themselves God Eaters, which is pretty cool, just yeah. because of all the the monsters that they had to deal with in order to even colonize where they are. Um, I have one small correction to make before our listeners just totally call me out on uh, Facebook. The oh, second okay. battle of Paramar was, in fact, not fought with the uh, Imperial Fist. It was fought with the Blood Angels and the White Scars. I was confusing Paramar with Fall. So apologies. I will let you know if House Roni was at Fall, but eh, probably was. I go out on a limb and say it was. Don't worry, listeners. We'll beat him later. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. But I mean, this is, I guess to end it on a high note, this has been a lot of fun. Um, you know, it's awesome to look at the pictures, but then to also like get really deep into the lore um, of these night houses has been fantastic. And and don't worry, listeners, we'll certainly be coming back tonight. I guarantee it. Um, but but yeah, it's been fantastic. Dave, Jason, do you guys have anything else to add? Uh, just remember to all of the uh, Adeptus Titanicus players out there, uh, Titans may be cool and everything. Uh, but it's a knight's world. Titans just play in it. This coming from the guy who has 43 of them. Um, 48. 48, sorry. How would I even get 43? That's such an odd number. <laughs> I don't know. Now, no, now if you been... paint them all. Sorry, go ahead, Dave. Yeah, this has been really fun. Um, I think, uh, I don't know where we're going next. I'm not sure we've decided, but... Uh, the next episode we do, we'll let you know, and uh, we'll give you guys a little bit of a, a break, a little bit of an introduction, and uh, we'll give you a little syllabus so you know where we're headed uh, for the next few episodes. Um, I don't think we've decided, Jason, have we? Do you know? I don't think so. I think we got as far as discussing like a sort of, um, kind of like a refresher episode, maybe like a one-off or something. Oh yeah, we could do that. Definitely. Do that. Yeah. I think that's as far as we got. I think there was a couple cool. things in the coordinate deeps that we wanted to go back and touch on for for an episode and then come back, if I remember correctly. But uh, regardless, um, you know, thanks for listening, guys. I will uh, real quick as a plug. Um, if you haven't already, and you're on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. Come out to the uh, come or go buy your tickets for the Nova Open. Um, it's coming up uh, end of August. I know it's only uh, March right now, but it's still coming up, and tickets are going off the shelves. I know I'll be there. Dave will be there. Jason will be there. A whole lot of the Remembrancers Retreat cast is going to be there. Um, and you can find us playing Heresy, uh, going to events, and having a good time. We're actually going to be sponsoring a pub night, or a, uh, a keg night, uh, Wednesday night, the first night of the, uh, the convention. But, but come out, say hi, and, and come, some, come play some awesome games, or, or go to some awesome seminars. Um, I know my first time to Nova was last year, and I had a blast. It, it was fantastic. So that's my plug. Yeah, it's a good time. Come say hi. Yeah, we won't bite. At least I don't think we won't. Um, But yeah, I guess if that's it, Dave, Jason, um, listeners, hope you've enjoyed. Um, And I guess we'll uh, just uh, tell Craig to fuck off. Fuck right off, Craig. (laughs) We really need to get a shirt that, like, that's fuck off, Craig. We really and like Craig's like Craig's picture, a shirt that says fuck off, Craig, and then like maybe Harry. Cool. That would be perfect. Of course. Listeners, <laughs> tell us. Do you want the shirt? 